0: you love your work, do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days for the Work You Love with Stan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune for or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Stan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. Now, you may notice a little difference in the uh, quality of our introduction this week. I'm not in Franklin, Tennessee, I'm not in front of all the fancy equipment that I usually have for a podcast. I'm doing this a little bit differently today, and I'll tell you why. I'm Joanna and I are down in Nacoma's Beach, Florida, and this is one of the examples of why I promote the No More Mondays lifestyle. Last week I purchased a car, it was on eBay, I didn't actually purchase it there, it went through, did not sell. I waited a couple of days, called the owner, uh, car dealer. We negotiated a price, and I purchased the car. I fully intended at that point I told him that I would fly down to Palm Beach, Florida the next day, pick up the car, and drive back the following day. Uh, that would have been a Friday and a Saturday. When Joanne heard where I was going, she said, wait a minute. you got to be kidding me. You're going to Palm Beach, Florida? She said, I would love to have a couple days at the beach. So last Wednesday, which was now a full week ago, we flew down. I anticipated we would stay perhaps until Saturday and then drive back home again. Well, we've had such a delightful time, and we really have. We've had just a marvelous time of of sitting on the beach and going to some of our favorite restaurants and catching movies and reading new books. And it is now a week later. We just simply have stayed. And at this point, we're determining exactly when we're going to go back. I think we will go back in the next couple days because we promised my daughter Ashley we'd keep her girls over the weekend because they have plans. So we'll probably be going back. That being said, here it is the day that I normally do a podcast. I didn't bring any of my equipment with me, did not bring my Adderall with me. So I'm using a more adequately. system using our instant teleseminar system that we use for live teleseminars, but even there I don't do the recording there. So the recording quality is probably not going to be up to speed what we're normally used to, but I'm going to go ahead anyway because I've got so many wonderful questions. I didn't want to just wait and uh, I like to be consistent. One of the things you'll hear me talk about is I like to be consistent once I start doing something and having started this podcast about four years ago, I'd never missed a week in doing it. So it's going to continue. And again, I apologize, but I think you'll bear with me because we've got some great questions again to deal with. If you're a new listener, welcome in to the 48 Days community. with a lot of people who are participating at 48days.net. You can go there and become a member that growing community. People share ideas readily. And I'm, I'm thrilled week after week to see new businesses that are being launched because people shared what their needs were, they asked questions, they got advice and opinion from other people, used that community as a brain trust to get their ideas up and running. So we're seeing businesses launched, musicians that are getting traction on what they actually want to do, artists that are doing the same, authors that are writing books, and a whole lot of things that are happening there. So I hope you're part of that community as well. Here are some of the things I'm going to be covering in today's podcast Uh, Dan, can you please speak to the finer points of the introduction letter and how it differs from the cover letter, along with the resume. Now, you know we don't deal a whole lot on a podcast with traditional job search, but I realize a lot of you are still perhaps operating in both camps We will still always have traditional jobs out there. I don't encourage everyone to become an entrepreneur or to move out of that, and a lot of people do both successfully over a long period of time. So there are still questions that we have that deal with the traditional job search. We've got a couple today. Interesting question uh, here that I'm thrilled to talk about is somebody says, should I turn down a raise because I've lowered my living cost? So what do you think? Are there times when you should turn down a raise? Will that work to your advantage? So we'll talk about that. Somebody says, Dan, I'm learning Mandarin Chinese. Can you help me think of ways I can use this skill uh, to generate income? Sure. Then, is the right to the bank event helpful to fiction writers or is it mainly geared toward nonfiction? Very fair question. I'll try to be fair in my uh, answer to that. Then, how can someone manage or even eliminate mindless, wasteful activities like watching TV? I've got some simple amp- answers for that particular question. But here's a quotation for The Week. And I I don't know who the author is of this. I heard it years ago. I've heard it in various forms, and I don't know who to attribute it to, but it's a worthy quotation to stimulate our thinking. If you have a penny, and I have a penny, and we exchange pennies, you still have one cent, and I still have one cent. But if you have an idea, and I have an idea, and we exchange ideas, you now have two ideas, and I have two ideas. You know, I love the principle of that quotation, concepts and ideas are meant to be shared, not to be kept secret, kept to ourselves. Uh, you become richer by sharing ideas and concepts rather than by hoarding those. You know, principles don't operate like money, like having tangible money in your hand, but they're intended to be shared freely and ultimately then in the sharing of ideas, it does, in fact, put money in our pockets. Okay, let me go to the first question here. Nicole says, I've self-published. I'm self-publishing my first book, and I love helping others self-publish. I'm pursuing opportunities with independent publishers and have an opportunity to help run the new publishing branch of a thriving women's coaching team. I would be an independent contractor but would have to sign a contract making my publishing-related activities subject to a 60-40 split with the coaching company. Your thoughts? Well, there, there ought to be a lot of factors, Nicole, that go into making that decision. If you are going to be sharing the efforts of other people, and there are, in fact, other people that are going to be putting their writing efforts together, and you're going to be marketing those together, uh, then I don't think that's an unreasonable kind of format. Where this tends to become something that people resent is where they're the only one that has put in valuable content. And they feel like then the other partners, 3, 4, whatever it happens to be, are just uh, sharing your efforts without really having contributed equally. So there ought to be some sense of equal contribution to share that much. 60-40 split is a big, big sharing of revenue, certainly beyond what any publisher would ever do. A publisher, well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I That that gets a little complicated because you may, in fact, only get 15% royalty of the net profits from a publisher, which would be far less than this. But there are other factors involved there. I use my publishers as a very inexpensive printer. So one of the biggest benefits of working with a publisher for me is that I get my books at deep, deep discounts. I can purchase... 48 Days to the Working Love in hardback in the new revised version for $2.43. It would be hard for me to duplicate that on my own. So one of the benefits that I have in working from a publisher is not just royalties, but the fact that I can purchase those books very inexpensively and then resell them and make most of my profit there. So if you feel like there's equal contribution from other partners, it could be an exciting thing to do. I would limit it to a specific project, not to something open-ended that anything you are involved with in the publishing arena is going to be thrown in that pot. I would limit it to a certain project or two or a certain period of time. Jean says, just listen to your dream job tell I enjoyed it very much. Can you please speak to the finer points of the introduction letter and how it differs from the cover letter sent along with the resume? Here's what we're trying to do with the three step process that I outline in the job search. The introduction letter, then together the cover letter and resume, and then the third component is the phone follow up. Those are three critical components. The reason for those is not that each one is scientifically uh necessary on its own, but simply because we are using the process repetition that we know is very effective in marketing anything. So if you can get people to see or hear about you three times, their response rate is going to go up dramatically. That's what we want to do, and that's the purpose of the introduction letter. It is to sow the seed. You are the person that they want to talk to. So an introduction doesn't require anything of the recipient, and it simply lays out, this is who I am. My name is Gene Miller. I'm exploring new opportunities in this arena. This is a little bit about my background. I think that what I offer would be a good match for the goals that you seem to have at your company. I will forward you in the next four or five days my cover letter and resume. That's essentially what an introduction letter does. A couple other ones on the same path. Patrick says, I interviewed with a startup company recently but didn't get the job. An opportunity came through an online recruiter who described this very attractive company, and it's in a way that I cannot imagine finding using your methods. Uh, Patrick, saying he can't imagine finding this startup company that the recruiter knew about. I worry I'm missing out on possible dream jobs because I lack enough clues to lead me to the hidden treasures. Where do I look to overcome that? Well, Patrick, here's what I would recommend with your job search. Use recruiters, but don't just use recruiters. Where I lay that out in 48 days, you know, I I tell you that results aren't great that people get from using recruiters. They really aren't. They're very, very poor. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is a recruiter may know about 15 great positions, but his interest is in filling those positions even if it's not a perfect match what you bring to the table, or what your goals or passions are. So there's that issue. Uh, The other thing is, there are just too many opportunities that are out there for any one recruiter to know about them. So if you're going to use a recruiter, use that for perhaps 10 or 15% of the process that you're using in your job search. The other 85% ought to be other things that you're doing. Why? And here's a way that you find these new startup companies that you're concerned about finding, and that is... Oh, and incidentally, (laughs) we're we're at a beach house, and it just so happens that the yard guys just showed up. So if you hear a lawnmower running here, it's because they are mowing about four feet from where I'm sitting. I'm sorry about that. One of the unexpected things of doing an impromptu um, podcast in a different location. Here's how you find those startup companies. In Nashville, we have the Nashville Business Journal, and pretty much any community is going to have its own version of the business journal. That's a great source for discovering those companies that just got $8 million of venture capital or that just announced they're going to be hiring 300 new people over the next 24 months. That's a place to do that. If you go to the library and you pull up your business journal and go through the last six months Editions of those, you're going to find lots of companies that are not going to be profiled on the front page of the paper or in the news because they're too new, they're startup, but they are going to be getting coverage in magazines like your local business journal, and I would encourage you by all means to be using those to find these. Now, Jesse asked an interesting question, and I laughed when I read this that uh, just came in uh, this afternoon. Uh, Jesse says, since you've been so successful on your own. How is it that you know so much about the job search process, including what hiring managers are looking for in an interview? I don't intend to be rude with this question, just merely curious. I I love the question, welcome it, and it's a very legitimate question because I have not looked for a job in quite some time. That being said, I, every day, and working with people who are in that process. so I do, And I also am very much in touch with hiring managers, CEOs of companies, and help companies look for and screen candidates still. That's always been a very important part of what I do. The last time I interviewed for a job was about 20 years ago, when I went through a real devastating business failure that i talked about a lot in my materials, and at that point I knew that I needed to get something really quickly, and I knew that what I needed to get was something where I had an open-ended income possibility, and so I was looking for a sales position. But I responded to an ad in the paper, just like I tell you is not a great way to do it, But I was using everything that I had at my disposal at that point. And I responded to an ad in the newspaper, showed up for an interview for a commission-only sales position, walked into a room full of guys in black suits and dark ties, and realized they were interviewing lots of people, not just two or three. I discovered after the fact they interviewed 64 candidates, in a two-day period, in that sea of black suits, I walked in in a pink sport coat. Now, to make a long story short, uh, the rest of the story is I got that position. I got the position where they interviewed 64 candidates, and I convinced them I was the guy they needed in that position. It turned out to be a very profitable position for me. I spent about two years i mean it was a transition for me to get back in my feet but it was an opportunity to get out there and sell they provided a lot of leads some structure but i was very much on my own it was a straight commission selling position i developed a 12 question questionnaire to knock on doors ask those questions and they were the kind of leading questions where people would um, have to be idiots to say no, and when you get somebody saying yes five times in a row, they're going to say yes to pretty much everything that you suggested them. So I used a sales process that was very successful, ended up hiring seven other people under me who also were totally commissioned, but I structured it so I got a percentage of everything that they were doing as well. So I, that's been a long time ago, granted, but I'm pretty familiar because of my work all these years with the hiring process, what hiring managers look for and what kind of candidates get the positions? Again, I I welcome your question, and it is a fair one. When I'm an entrepreneur and um, uh, have not been out knocking on doors looking for jobs in a while, do I really have my ear to the ground, so to speak? This question comes – this is an anonymous question, and – that's fine, a lot of times I ignore questions that are anonymous, but this one was uh, cute enough and I thought it had enough value that I wanted to include it here and you'll hear why. Mr. Miller, loved the podcast and listening to the 48 Days podcast, I've listened to all the back issues of the podcast in the RSS feed. In one of the podcasts, a person asked about getting more money at work due to her living costs going up and she got fired for asking. You had talked about you get paid for what your skills are worth and what you bring to the company and what your skills value bringing in the market, which I completely agree with. This might seem like an odd or even foolish question, but I would like your opinion. What about the other end of that idea? What about when a person's living costs go down? I've been listening to your buddy Dave Ramsey a bit too much, and now I'm totally out of debt. Since people at work know I'm out of debt, including my boss, Would it be a good idea to let my boss know at raise time that I don't need a raise? Should I turn down a raise? I'm thinking by doing that, I'm making a statement about being a team player and increasing my value to the company by working for the same amount. The same question would apply that since my costs are a lot lower, I could work for $10,000 less than what I'm currently making a year, your opinion. Wow, what a great setup and what a great position to be in, let me say that. Right off the bat, what a great position to be in, and there are certainly a lot of factors here in terms of how profitable the company is, you know what your history has been with them. I mean there are a lot of things to be considered, but I'm just going to take it on the very on the surface level and respond like I would initially respond. Let's just let me ask myself this: How about if I tell my publisher that they don't need to pay me anything? for this next book that we're working on. Paying me, uh, you know, I'm okay, you know, and they know that, so they don't need to pay me anything. But see, paying me is not based on what I need, but rather on what the project is worth for the publisher. If I don't need the money, uh, then I just need to be responsible while passing it on to causes or individuals that I think are worthy. See, your pay should never be based on what you need whether that's a whole lot or very little. If you go to Taco Bell and you wanna work there and you know you have the skills to do that, you know they'll love having you there, but you've got a $2,000 a month mortgage payment, that's not gonna work. It's just not gonna, it doesn't matter how much they like you and how good a candidate you are for that. What you need in that situation is probably not gonna work. Now on the other hand, If you know that you're a candidate to be the CEO of IBM, but you have very modest needs, your house is totally paid for, you're out of debt, as you're describing, you don't need the money, you say, well, you know, just pay me $500 a month and I'll be fine. It it wouldn't be a reasonable kind of agreement. You should be compensated based on the value of your contribution, Now, again, you're in the wonderfully advantageous position of not needing every dime of your pay just to meet your basic needs, but what happens in that situation is we get to see what kind of person you really are, what you value, and how you handle the issue of stewardship. And Think about the ramifications of not needing the entire income you're creating. You can then make decisions based on how you're simply managing your financial assets, and I remember when we purchased the house that we're in now, and we talked to the mortgage company in advance, which I would always advise a person to do before we ever started looking at houses, so they did the initial deal with us, boom, they came back and said, "Well, you can buy a house you know in this price range and I said, "Well, that's wonderful." but I said, "You know we certainly don't need we don't need a fourth that much house." and they're like, well, what do you mean you, you know people buy the maximum they qualify for. And I said, well, most people may, but I don't think that's reasonable for us to do at all. Our children are grown. We're looking for a modest home someplace in the country that's peaceful. A lot of you listening have been to our house, so you make decisions about, you know, it's not ostentatious, but it's very comfortable for us. We love being there. And so we bought a house that was nowhere near what we qualified for. Well, that should be a position that everybody should get to, where they're not just spending every dime that they have, where you it gets to the position, you know, the Old Testament talks about blessed to be a blessing. You know, the the reason for earning income is just is not just to provide for our own needs. The reason for earning an income is for the satisfaction that takes place, for the value that it brings the other party in that agreement and the opportunity then to be a resource so you can have blessings flow through you. I mean, retirement, this is where I kind of get off on retirement. In our culture, retirement implies that a person now has enough money to meet their own needs, so now they can stop being productive. I mean, what a horrible notion that is. If you have the ability to generate income, then you have the responsibility to do so. Do that for as long as you possibly can. So, no, I don't think that it really ought to be a factor that you have lowered your living cost. You could live on less. I'm not sure you're doing anybody any favors by telling a company that. I think that short circuits the fact that you have managed your finances well, that you are in a great position, and that you now can start to leverage your ability to handle money well, and be a blessing to other individuals or organizations in ways that most people may never experience. Congratulations on doing that, incidentally. Great question. Todd says, what resources would you suggest to test my personality type and suggest careers based on the results? Having a tough time finding my passion, I think this would help. Well, I have to recommend our personality profile. I mean, we have a 48 days personality profile. It is the hottest selling product that we have. Far outsells any of my books because there are organizations with hospitals and mortgage companies and manufacturing organizations, real estate firms that use uh, organizations like state farm insurance that use the personality profile to make sure that this is the right match. For the skills required in a particular position. So I would certainly recommend that you use that, Todd. Just go to 48days.com, to our product section, scroll down. You can see a lot of information there about the profile. You can look at an actual profile. You can hear me talk about all the different sections and how they help you focus in on what it is that you would do well. Let me just add one little caveat. That is not enough by itself to have you make a career decision. The profile is going to give you a list of suggested careers. But this is where we want it to be very individualized, very personalized, and you're going to see on there titles that come from primarily the DOT, the Dictionary of Occupational Titles. So they're very standard, categorized kind of job titles, you know, teacher, attorney, physician, dentist assistant or whatever, you're going to see things like that. We have a lot of people who end up in occupations that are much more personalized than that. So if you're going to be an artist or a wood sculptor or, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing down here that really has intrigued me right now is drawbridge operators. I mean, that, that's not a, a career that you're going to go through school and somebody say, hey, you ought to grow up and be a drawbridge operator. And you know, we've seen countless, these guys, they sit in these little approximately six-by-eight-foot booths. You know, as you approach a bridge, they watch for boats that come through that are too large. And, of course, they have a communication systems, so they stop traffic and raise the bridge. Now, they're going to spend you know, seven hours and 50 minutes of their day, perhaps, sitting there watching TV or doing whatever it is they do in those little cubicles, and that seems to be the primary uh user of time is watching TV. I mean, I've seen guys watching sci-fi horror movies, you know, in the middle of the day, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what a sad way to spend your day. That drawbridge operator. Well, that's the kind of thing you're not going to find on a personality profile or career test, but you ought to recognize other things about yourself in addition to what the personality profile tells you. Things that you are naturally drawn to, things that you know you do well and enjoy, things other people have seen you do well, And those all of a sudden start to create some clear areas of focus that will help you make that decision. Jamie says, I currently provide architectural 3D illustrations part-time. As a mom with a soon-to-be empty nest, my 48 days start now. Well, congratulations on that, Jamie. I have a love and aptitude for listening to entrepreneurs and turning their words into pictures, 3D logos, prototypes, custom furniture, space planning, 3D renderings, and so on. Is there a market for this, and how can I reach it? And Jamie's website is sharedbiz, com. Now, Jamie, I went to your website, and your work is beautiful, but your question is legitimate. Is there a market for this? As I looked at that, I tried to imagine me paying for you to provide a visual model for my idea. I probably am not a very good uh, candidate or prospect. I tend to see something and then know it's something I want. I'm sitting here looking right now at a couple pieces, art pieces that we've picked up, a sculpture that we're going to have in our house, a stained glass set that we're going to have in one of our large a windows that looks out the front of our property. Uh, those are things that I would never have imagined, but seeing them in a completed form, I then could easily see those in our house as valuable additions. I, I got a couple of chairs. I'm just totally jazzed. Can't wait to get back home, put these chairs in my office. My office in the sanctuary, the barn on the back side of our property. I had a decorator help me with that and I love the colors, the carpets that are down, the accent rugs, the bookcases that are built in and all those things, the palladium window I love what I've got in my office. However, I have two chairs in there for people who come in, clients or people who come by. They're just traditional high-back winged winged leather chairs. I've never been thrilled about them. They've always just been okay. Well, we ran into a couple of chairs at a place down here in Nicomas Beach, Florida, that are just stellar. They're leather on the bottom, and then the back is like a tapestry, and then the top, both of them have these intricate carvings with two eagle heads, one on each side coming in from the outside. They're absolutely breathtaking. And we negotiated for those and have those in the back of the SUV that I purchased down here that we're going to drive home. I was able to get them in there, pad them, and um, thrilled about getting them home. I would never have been able to visualize those chairs in the way that I see them here. So I think you have to be working with somebody in your business where you create these renderings where they have a pretty clear sense of what it is that they want already. I kind of work almost in reverse to that. Again, I'm probably not a good candidate. I think what you do is displayed well on your website. I think you convey well the idea of helping people with space utilization and right sizing, knowing what things they can take with them if they're moving their office or their home to a new location. But with those, you're talking about for the most part a client that would only need your services perhaps once or maybe, you know, once every five or six years or something. So you would have a constant process of marketing. Where you may have a better stream of clients is working with new office complexes as they lease those spaces to the clients. Or perhaps with a hospital that's going to do a new addition. And again, your work is beautiful and yes, I do think there's a, I think it's unique enough to create a very profitable business for you. And if you can market it properly so you get a steady stream of clients and then referrals from that, I certainly think that you can do well with what you've got. Grant says, Grant from Florence, Kentucky, and it's interesting that it's in Kentucky because of his question. Grant says, Dan, I'm learning Mandarin Chinese. I have a passion for it. Can you help me think of ways I can use this skill when I'm fluent in it? There don't seem to be any opportunities in the Northern Kentucky area. I would like to use this skill to help communicate with China while supporting my family at home. We all know that China is making big inroads in American business and all kinds of industries. Yes, you're absolutely right in that. China is making big inroads in American business. And that is an opportunity for you. The fact that there are business people from China coming over, and certainly there are those even in northern Kentucky. I mean, if you're up in the Cincinnati area, that's a highly urbanized, business-intense area. So there's certainly things that are coming in there. You'll have to spread the word about that. Uh, The other thing is going to be in politics. There are going to be politicians from Northern Kentucky who want to visit China to try to establish connections, relationships there, and your ability to be an effective translator, communicator for them could be very, very valuable. Uh, The other areas where I've seen somebody having a unique language like that uh, come into play as a very highly paid translator is in legal or medical environments. If somebody from China comes To your area and they're going, they have a child who's going to have a complicated procedure done at one of your high tech hospitals there. Your services to be on board, typically it's going to be at like $50 an hour to do the translation can be a very profitable niche for you. The other is in the legal field, same kind of thing. Somebody who perhaps got into legal trouble there whose native language is Chinese and now they're going to be in an American courtroom. Your service is there, and that could be paid for by the court system often, not by the individual themselves. Connie says, is your right to the bank event helpful to fiction writers, or is it mainly geared toward nonfiction? Well, let me try to be as fair as I can about this, Connie. And I, I've seen you be involved on 40 uh, daysnet and delighted that you've uh, connected there, and that you're interacting with a lot of people there as you're developing your own writing skills. In Write to the Bank, uh, we focus on the marketing, not the writing. And in doing so, and focusing so much on the marketing, uh, the principles probably are more applicable to nonfiction books, the inspirational, self-help, informational. It's a little more difficult to do newsletters, blogs, podcasts, interviews around the content of a fiction book. But I ran this by Joanne a little bit ago, my wife. I said, you know, is our Right to the Bank event geared more toward nonfiction writers than fiction? And she immediately said, well, she didn't think so. And she reminded me of all the people who had come through there who now have children's books that are being done. The member, Laura Clifford, that we have highlighted this week on 48days.net, came to write to the bank. She now has two children's books completed and up on Amazon, and she's doing a remarkable job of that. And again, they're children's books, so that certainly would be in the fiction category, not nonfiction. We have a lady, Erin Casey, who's been to write to the bank. She's one of the editors with Success Magazine. Her desire was to get her own work published and that's fiction, not nonfiction, and she has since come out with a book. I mean, We have lots and lots of examples of people who have come through who are doing fiction rather than nonfiction. But in all fairness, I would certainly say from my vantage point, of course, my heart is in nonfiction. I I would do a horrible job of writing fiction. I don't have any feel for it at all, but so much of my efforts in the writing arena have to do with positioning and marketing books not just in creating the content so in write to the bank we don't deal with syntax and punctuation and you know those kind of things uh, grammatical correction we deal with those very lightly because there are so many places to learn that what we deal with is the business of writing not the actual process of writing now I'd love to have you come to write to the bank and I think there's a lot of things that you would benefit from there but Yeah, I think that we, I think that we certainly gear it more toward nonfiction just because of my own success in the nonfiction arena. That's what I can speak most knowledgeably about. Daniel from Los Angeles says, Dan, I have a love for jewelry and would like to have a business in this field. I would love to sell a design, but how do I do that if I don't have a few thousand dollars for capital and my artistic talent is low? Well, Daniel, I think you need to rethink how you've stated what you want to do in the jewelry field, but then I'm going to give you some clear options. You say that you have a love for jewelry and you don't have to have a business in this field. I would love to sell and design, but how do I do that if I have, don't have thousands of dollars for capital and my artistic talent as well? I think because of the way you've structured this, if you try to design and make your own jewelry, I think you'll fail. If you really think that your artistic artistic talent is low, then don't beat your head against the wall. Now, certainly there are things that you can learn, but I think that you would be frustrated in the length of time it takes to learn if you're just trying to do this on your own. Now, there are a couple ways to approach this. One is... Get connected at the hip with somebody who's already doing this, somebody who's already designing and making jewelry. But your quickest entrance into this whole arena is to sell and promote the jewelry of other people. You can have the finest jewelry in the world, some really unique things that you can be promoting that people are going to just drop their jaw over, not because you designed it, but because it is designed extremely well by somebody who does have the talent for doing that. So use your talent. If your talent is in your passion for jewelry and you have a talent for selling and marketing it, my goodness, become a distributor for six other jewelry designers or lines where you can uh, do home shows or you can set up booths at the street fairs in your community, online store that you can set up. I mean, do it in that way. Now, trust me, the money in jewelry is made not in designing it, but in selling it. Now, there are a couple of examples that you can look at. One is Sarah Ritchie, S A R A H R I C H E Y dot com. If you just check Sarah Ritchie, she is a young gal who went to New York to learn from some of the designers, but she's um, Daughter, of some friends of ours, and she's done a beautiful job with her jewelry. Joanne has several pieces; they're exquisite. She's gotten those introduced into some high fashion boutiques, and is doing really well just on her own as an individual designing jewelry. But she has a a, a real obvious flair for it, talent for doing it really well. Another example you can look at is my son Jared's site, Kaza K-E-G-A dot com. Jared doesn't design jewelry, but he has internships for students from the Rhode Island School of Design, RISI. It's one of the most popular design schools, most prestigious design schools in the world. Interns from their design jewelry, he then has African ladies create it and then brings it back for high fashion shows that they have in Los Angeles and Chicago and New York and Miami where it's sold at high dollars, and of course you'll see the online presence for those pieces as well. So you can be immersed in your passion for jewelry and be very successful financially without ever designing anything. You don't have to have thousands of capital. You can take inventory on consignment, sell it, and just keep your portion of the profits and build you know, your financial reserves quickly by doing that. Thomas from uh, Illinois says, "Dan, with the current gas prices constantly on the rise, I want to open up a green car dealership where every vehicle sold would get an EPA average of 30 miles per gallon. I'd like to open up a dealership, but the state of Illinois is making this process extremely difficult. How would you start?" Thanks for being. Thanks a lot for being my inspiration. Well, Thomas. Opening a dealership in any state is very difficult. You've got the lot size, surface requirements, sign rules, then all the legalities of paperwork, admissions requirements, using temp tags, uh, getting temp tags to out-of-state buyers like we had to go through with this vehicle I just bought here. The list goes on and on. It's, it's a very complex business to actually have a dealership. However, those things are manageable. The real question is: Is there enough market in that niche of cars that only get 30 miles per gallon? We know that Toyota, Honda, and even Chevy have their green cars and hybrids and high mileage, but that's still a tiny percentage of their sales, and certainly not where they make the most money. In 2011, Ford introduced the Forward. Now, most people have never even heard of it. They they were forced to have something in that category. But you and I both know, Ford is knocking it out of the park with their big trucks. And guys who live in a tiny apartment drive a 4x4 F350 with a winch in the front, 20-inch rims and a fuel injection system. I mean, we just have to be realistic about what kind of cars people still buy. Uh, This is a little bit like opening a vegetarian restaurant. I mean, we know people need it. We know it's healthier for them. But do they really want it? You know, I've always said you you can eke out a living selling people what they need. So if you're selling transmissions or washing machines, you know, hot water heaters, you can make a living, but you're probably not going to get rich. But you can get rich selling what they want. Well, if you're in the car business and you're selling only cars that get 30-plus miles per gallon, you're going to have to pass on probably 90% of the cars you know you can make a profit on because they don't fit your niche. Well, I would encourage you to do lots and lots of research to make sure there's really enough of a market for green cars. But one thing, you're in Schaumburg, Illinois, and I'm not familiar with Schaumburg, so I don't know how big of a town that is. If you're like most car dealers, you're gonna have about a five mile radius of prospects. So that even more limits your market. You would have to, by all means, add a strong eBay and online presence for selling the cars like you're talking about. about. So you can have that tiny group of prospects that you're gonna be found in every community like yours So you can be selling cars all across the Midwest and perhaps the entire country. Otherwise, I think it's going to be a tough, tough concept to make work. This one comes from Robert. He says, Dan, thanks for sharing your story about your relatives staying at your home and watching the Casey Anthony trial on television that made you go bonkers. I I complained about that last week, but we had a, a guest in our home who recuperated from a little medical operation by sitting in front of the TV for an entire week with 24-7 the Casey Anthony trial. I cringed at having that negativity permeate our peaceful home, not what we like to have. Anyway, Robert says, I know that watching too much mindless TV is not good, but sometimes it distracts me from pursuing my passion. I'm truly starting to believe that there's an inverse relationship between watching TV and pursuing your dream opportunity. I would agree totally, totally. Well, it says you can think of uh, TV watching as time wasted. In other words, the more hours you watch TV, the more you fall away from your dream on a downward slope. This leads to my question, Robert says, how can someone manage or even eliminate mindless activities Like watching TV. Thank you for 48 days and thank you to God for 168 hours. Robert, wow, let me just simplify this. How do you eliminate eliminate mindless, wasteful activities like watching TV? It's called personal responsibility. You just make the decision. Decide in advance how you will invest those 168 hours that you have. See, we don't want there to be a national or state law that you can only watch four hours of TV a week. I would never want that to be the case. I mean, I think four hours a week would probably be overload for me, but I would never want a law that would restrict anybody else from watching as much as they want. But with freedom comes responsibility and opportunity. So we have the freedom to spend as much time as we want wasting time, putting trash into our minds, all those kind of things that you are describing as a waste of time. We have the opportunity to do that. You can decide how you're going to spend your precious 168 hours. Just make a schedule of that. Decide in advance, just like you would with $168. If you're going to budget it like Dave Ramsey talks about, you decide in advance how you're going to invest those hours. And then you can put those in into activities that are, in fact, worthwhile. I mean, that's certainly what I do. I mean, I decide in advance how I'm going to spend my time. Incidentally, I've discovered in being down here this week that I can maintain my business very effectively with two hours a day. Now, I can back down to that in times like this, at the drop of a hat, nobody knows any differently on all the receiving end of things that I, they see me doing. But what that means is I'm not making progress in developing new ideas, completing new projects that I am committed to myself to complete. So I'm just doing the bare minimum. I like having the flexibility to do that, but it also reminds me that I better be investing beyond those two hours a day if I, in fact, am going to accomplish new things like I like to do. The last one comes from Rob in Centerville, Tennessee. Dan, I've heard you say knocking out of the park so many times. I instantly associate that with you and your work. I think that would be a great title for one of your books. At the very least, it's a good signature sign-off phrase idea. No royalty checks necessary, sir. Thanks for inspiring me. I guess that's one of those old farm phrases that I just uh, do throw in there unconsciously and don't realize how so often I mention it when I Talk about somebody being able to knock it out of the park with their idea, but it kind of captures the essence of what I mean and my encouragement to a lot of people. So let me bring up here, see if I can finish this out here like we normally do. All right, we're going to have this running in the background here. Again, I apologize for the quality of this. This is not typical, but we're going to clean it up again next week. But uh, again, Dan Miller here reminding you to be finding or creating work that is meaningful, productive, and profitable, and incidentally, along the way, knock it out of the park. That's what you ought to be doing. I hope you're having a wonderful week pursuing the things about which you are passionate.